At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matthew Petty, and this is Florida Matters. A lot of the boys who survived the infamous Dozier School for Boys carried the trauma of their time there into adulthood. But some boys never came home, and their families, brothers, sisters, parents, spent decades trying to find out what had happened. In her new book, We Carry Their Bones, forensic anthropologist Erin Kimmerley details the quest to uncover the truth about boys who went missing at the Dozier School. Digging up an unmarked cemetery in the hard red clay and the heat and humidity of North Florida was hard work, but that was just part of the challenge. Kimberly and her team also faced resistance from people who said there was nothing to find or that what they were attempting couldn't be done. We Carry Their Bones is a harrowing story of decades of abuse perpetrated on boys confined to the Dozier School for Boys in the Florida Panhandle, but it's also a testament to the courage of the survivors and their families and Kimberly's relentless determination to uncover the truth. Erin Kimberly is a forensic anthropologist, author, and artist. She's the director of the Florida Institute for Forensic Anthropology and Applied Science and an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of South Florida. And she led the investigation into the deaths and burials at the former Arthur G. Dozier School for Boys in Mariana, Florida. Erin Kimberly, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start by asking if you could read the very first paragraph of the book. Okay. Before the lawsuits and protests, before the ground-penetrating radar and DNA testing, before we were stalked and before the citizens of Jackson County tried to have me arrested, before we ever stuck a shovel in the red dirt of North Florida to exhume bodies, I stood in the women's restroom as the news media gathered in the large room outside and began setting up their cameras and checking their microphones waiting for me to step before them and tell them what I had learned about the dead boys. And then you end the paragraph by saying, I did not want to do this. And it's just kind of a really interesting start to the story because it seems like you were kind of carried along in this investigation. And I wanted to ask you, Erin, what got you started on the quest to find out what happened at the Dozier School and and more specifically, find the bodies of missing boys who were buried at the school? Probably like so many people who are familiar with this story, I first learned about it reading the work of Ben Montgomery, who at the time was a reporter for the St. Petersburg Times. And he had done a lot of investigative work about the school, what was happening at the at the time. The school was still open. It only closed in 2011. And going back to the 1950s and 60s, where all these men had been coming forward with stories of abuse and and telling what had happened to them. So he did a lot of work, and and through that work, uh, some of the families of boys who died at the school had also come forward, and they'd they'd spent decades looking for um, information about what had happened to their brothers and where their brothers were buried. So meeting some of those families and hearing their stories and their quest really resonated with me. It's the kind of work I do every day. And the official sort of position by the state of Florida was that it couldn't be done. Uh, Nothing could be done to help them find these graves that were unmarked. And so that's where I 
took it on as a research project to try and help them. And one of the people you talk about in the book is a man named Robert Straley. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you first met him and how his story resonated with you. Yeah, Robert was one of the first men to come forward with four other men and uh, started what became known as the White the White House Boys. And they, that name comes from a building in which they'd been uh, punished and, and received really awful whipping uh, as a punishment. And so, but Robert had been sharing his story publicly. He co-authored a book about his experience and was actually doing a talk about the book along with Ben Montgomery uh, at a bookstore downtown. And so I went and listened to them and uh, his story. And after that, just started talking with him and we became good friends. And then another person you talk about throughout the course of the book is Glenn Varnado. How did he get in touch with you? Initially, I reached out to him. Um, like Robert, he had shared his story with uh, reporters and with Ben and had been pretty public about, you know, wanting to find answers about what had ha- happened to his uncle. And uh, his father and his uncle had both been sent to the reform school, but his uncle unfortunately died and was buried there. And it was something that he didn't and really no one in the family ever talked about until uh, his own father's passing. And so I had reached out to Glenn to say that we were going to do this research project. And initially, our goal was to use ground-penetrating radar and uh, archaeological methods to try and document this unmarked burial ground. Historic cemeteries are preserved, and there's a number of statutes that allow access and preservation. And so that was what we wanted to do is basically say, look, it's known there's a burial ground here, even though the boundary's unknown, the number and location of graves are unknown. But if we could try to find them and find the number, how many there were, we thought that might be a first step in helping the families. So Glenn was very receptive, and and so were the others that we Mm -hmm. talked to, like Ovel Krell. And, of course, the more we dug into it, the more we found, um, the more historical research that added to that history and context Um, the more vocal they became about wanting to not only locate the graves but actually excavate them. They wanted identification and to bring their brothers home to bury them next to their families. Now, the state of Florida had said there were 31 graves at Dozier. You ended up finding more than 50. At the start of the research, did you expect there would be so many? From the beginning, I thought that the number 31 was probably wrong. And if for no other reason, you know, I've worked in so many cemeteries now with different projects, even the cold case work we do where we're exhuming modern day John Doe's, you know, homicide victims, every cemetery has errors and problems and border issues and misplaced bodies and so forth. So to have a completely unmarked cemetery that's been neglected for decades and where everyone sort of died under these suspicious or unusual circumstances um, just made me very skeptical that we had the whole story. But when we started doing both the archival research and the field work, uh, it became evident that there were many more graves. And, and through the field work, we initially estimated 50 And then once we excavated, we found 55. One of the fascinating things about this book, Erin, I think is the level of detail in your description 
of the process of uh, forensic anthropology. At one point you're talking about what happens to the soil when a body is buried. And let me just read a, a little quote here. Uh, All the bodies and artifacts, the nails, wood, metal, bone, enamel may decompose in the soil, but for all traces of any disturbance to disappear beyond recognition in less than 100 years is extremely unlikely and not something I've ever witnessed. You cannot simply undig a hole. What were some of the most challenging aspects of the investigation into the Doja site? Well, on the one side, I would say the most challenging was the politics and and the you know resistance and this constant drumbeat of you know people saying you're not going to find anything, it can't be done, we don't want you to do it, and so forth. Because we know it's in our capacity, we know we have the the scientific capability and it's something that we do uh, every day so that that was a frustration when it came to the physical work I would say the challenge was the North Florida soils are red clay and it's not just extremely hot temperature with a high water table but um, at oftentimes you know trowels and shovels don't work it's basically you have to use pickaxes in the summer to try to break through that soil so it's it's very physically demanding were there any points along the way where you sort of started to lose a bit of hope or or faith that you would find the people that you knew were were buried or thought were buried there and and be able to kind of reconnect them with their families well through the effort that we made to try and get permission to do the excavation, the, to exhume all of the graves. We initially went through the medical examiner, through the you know, medical legal system, um, and asked the court. That should have been a straightforward, simple way to go about it. You know, when we later went to Pennsylvania to exhume Thomas Curry, who had been sent home, that was the process we followed, and everyone's response was, no problem, and we immediately got a court order. So it's disheartening when you work in a system and you know that the system has the ability to work very well, but then it's not working for you. Um, after that, we applied, uh, made a request and appeal to the Division of Historical Resources to do this under the auspice of an archaeological permit, and that was also denied. Um, and there was a lot of, hmm. you know, positioning around that, that these graves are very sacred and not to be d- disturbed. And, you know, I would say on any sort of given day in Florida, burials are being moved. Um, historic cemeteries are built upon and moved for construction and development um, continuously. And so here was this reason, you know, this, this situation where we hmm. were doing it for a historic justice issue and at the bequest of families but suddenly, you know, the ground was too sacred and, and the mission too impossible. You're listening to Florida Matters. We're talking with forensic anthropologist Erin Kimberly about her book, We Carry Their Bones, The Search for Justice at the Dozier School for Boys. Still to come, Kimberly talks about what it was like to help find answers for the families of boys who were sent to Dozier School and never came home. That's when we return. Welcome back to Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. I'm talking with forensic anthropologist Erin Kimmerley. She led the investigation into the deaths and burials at the former Arthur G. Dozier School for Boys in Mariana, Florida, and her book about the investigation is called We Carry Their Bones. In chapter three of your book, 
Aaron, you write about a stint working for the UN investigating war crimes in Kosovo, Bosnia and Croatia uh, beginning in 1999. I wonder how that experience prepared you for the Dozier investigation. I think there were some uh, similarities in the sense that we had a very large uh, multidisciplinary team. That's something that you see in international work and you see in the um, international tribunals or investigations that, that are ongoing in different parts of the world. It's a little bit more unusual for the United States because here everything is about jurisdiction. And so you know, agencies might bring in an outside expert here and there. And as an anthropologist, we're often that expert. But to have a team where, you know, we had over 60 volunteers from 20 different agencies, um, I, it just it reminded me a lot of that, of that type of work. And um, it really did take logistics, anthropologists, archaeologists, botanists, different experts to all come in and and help tell part of that Mm -hmm. story. And you'd spent quite a long time sort of building up those relationships, particularly with people in law enforcement, right? This kind of comes across in the book that you had to really rely on some of those networks that you developed to help get through some of the resistance that you encountered along the way. Yes, that was very true. And and even some of the volunteers and, and people who came just to provide you know, extra labor and extra expertise in, in archaeology and help were people that I'd worked with in the Balkans, Peru, um, Nigeria. So it, it's definitely, I would say, forensic anthropology is a small community, but it's, you know, a good, a good network of people. And when it came to the medical legal side, we relied a lot. We're very uh, grateful for uh, Sheriff David G., who was sheriff at the time in Hillsborough County. So not the county of jurisdiction where this mm-hmm. school was, but in our own sort of hometown. And uh, he provided a lot of assistance. When you have that law enforcement number, when you have that law enforcement support, the system opens up. And again, it's it's not a perfect system, mm-hmm. but it can work very well. And it's about getting access and who gets access right? And that was their choice. So I think it's important because a lot of problems and the, and the challenges with cold cases, you know, the, the fact that Florida has over 10,000 unsolved homicides, they fall into this kind of historic justice issue more and more because they come from the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and the extent to which different agencies investigate them is highly variable. And in fact, I mean, sometimes the case is cracked kind of almost by chance, right? I was reading just today in the Orlando Sentinel that um, a cold case was solved because the killer confessed, but I'm sure that doesn't happen that often. That's right. Yeah, it's it often takes a lot of public engagement to get victims and um, families to come forward. Back to the Dozier investigation, you got so much pushback during the course of this, especially from residents of Mariana. Were you expecting that pushback? I think that to some extent uh, we expected it, but the extent to which it came and the duration, the fact that it continued for so long, <laughs> um, I was probably, at the beginning, I, w- I wouldn't have expected that. Even the point where we were starting to do the work, where we were starting to um, do the excavation. And it was really mixed. It was It was an interesting place to be because... There was very vocal public opinion against what we were doing. But at the same time, there were many people in the community 
really close to the you know space who would come and see us who would come and help us who would provide support provide logistics sort of support and be very clear though don't you know not to let anyone know who they were or that they were supporting us because they had to continue to live in that community and didn't didn't want it to be out yeah there's even a there's an anecdote in the book about when you and your team stop in at a restaurant and you get some kind of snide comment from the one of the wait staff or the the owner of the restaurant and then later they come and tell you i support what you're doing but i can't let anybody know that which is really kind of indicative of the the mood in the community i guess yes it really was and uh, and i think that's where the the advocate and the you know uh, in me gets frustrated i i do understand it i do understand their position um, but at the same time, I, you know, wanted to say to them, look, there's, there's many more of you than you realize and change, you know, this is how you change things ultimately is, is speaking out. So, um, but yeah, I, I do understand the, the challenge that they faced. There's a few places in the book where you talk about the connection that you feel to the survivors who reached out to you and to all of the boys who were sent to the school. Um, and there's a passage from page 53 where you talk about what happened to the boys who tried to run away from the school. Uh, I wonder if you could read that passage. It begins, that must have taken so much courage and ends with, then where did you run? That must have taken so much courage, I thought, to be all of 10 or 12 or 14 years old, to wait for the right moment, probably under the cover of darkness, then make a break for it into the great unknown, so brave and so desperate to run away into the middle of nowhere. I pictured my own two sons, locked away for skipping school, something I had done when I was young, and hating this place or missing home so hard that they would risk a beating in the White House for a chance to get away. Then where did you run? Erin, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how your empathy with the Dozier boys and their families kind of informed and shaped your work investigating the burials, because it, it really... I, th- I think it really comes across that you, you feel a real strong connection with these families. Well, I think that it's a couple of, you know, a couple of things happened early on through this investigation, um, just meeting the families and, and hearing their stories and how they had spent years, I mean, their entire lives searching for their brothers only to, you know, get nowhere, to get no no help, no um no one to you know sort of show them the show them the graves or explain what happened. Um, you know this the work that I do in forensic anthropology is about identification and helping you know like return identity and and repatriate remains to families. So I do empathize with that struggle. Um, I think having two boys myself, being a mother, and at the time they were quite small. You know, it's hard to imagine that the what the practices used to be. You know, that these the children could be arrested, taken to court, sentenced. You know, sent to a juvenile reform school, and through all that whole process, the parents are notified after the fact. Right? Children didn't have lawyers. Um, mm-hmm. The parents weren't there. It was just. It's such a story of why civil rights are. You know, were and are so important in that fight to get them because there were just no protections for for anyone. And so meeting a lot of these men then today who came and talked to us and told their stories, 
you know, and some of them, like Robert, were very public, but many of them were not. And many of them sat down with us and, and talked about what their experience was, having never before told anyone, even their own families. And so it was quite emotional and uh, I think important for them, but it it put us in a position that was very, I think, special and unique with them. You mentioned uh, Oval Krell, uh, another one of the people that you write about in the book, and she wanted answers about what had happened to her brother, George Owen, at the school decades ago. Uh, I wonder if you could talk briefly about how you came to know her and the story of her brother. Yeah, I was uh, just so in awe of Oval. She is um, this brilliant, beautiful woman who um, was a teenager when her brother was taken there. In 1941, she went with her parents to help look for him. He had run away. He'd run away twice. Um, so they went up there to sort of search for him and find answers, find out from the school, like, what was happening. And then were, when they were uh, about to embark on this journey, were notified that his remains were found, that he had died and was basically decomposing underneath a house uh, under the crawl space in town. And... The family never believed the story that he basically had just run away and got sick and crawled under this house and died. Another boy that had been there with George said that as they were running across the field, they were being shot at. So she always believed that he was shot and that the school, you know, sort of found the, the remains as soon as the family was coming. Um, they had asked the funeral home, local funeral home, to ship the body home and it was denied and he was buried in an unmarked grave. So Ovell in the 1950s became one of Florida's first female police officers, and she talked about wanting to be a policewoman to, you know, the search for justice and the search to find out what had happened to him and, and to do right, <laughs> and that was, that was her life's goal. And so she'd searched, you know, her mm-hmm. whole life for him. So it was very moving when she came up to Dozier with us. She came up there once to to look around and see what she remembered about being there. And her memory was amazing. She was spot on with the buildings and, and everything we looked at. What was it like to be able to give Oval Crowell a definitive answer about what had happened to her brother? It really felt too good to be true. Um, I went to her house along with some of the um, Hillsborough Sheriff's uh, folks that we'd been working with. It was really powerful to be able to say, we actually found him. And very near this, she described a large oak tree, which, you know, when you're in the woods, there's lots of oak trees, but it, you know, we did find him near one. And so it really just felt like it came together. And I think she was very shocked. She just kept asking, are you sure? Is this real? And uh, it just kind of took a while to sink in. And eventually, and then, you know, we were able to ultimately give the remains back, and she and her family buried him next to her parents. There's one more passage I wanted you to read, if you could, Erin. It's in the first chapter of the book, and it's where you're thinking about how to explain your findings to the press without some of the technical language. The passage begins, uh, when you think of Florida and ends um, robbed of them decades before, it's on page 10. Uh, I wonder if you could read that passage for us. It was indeed a mouthful, a professional opinion. I wondered if I should have put it more plainly, something like this. When you think of Florida, you might think of sugar sand beaches and citrus trees, space shuttles and Disney World. 
but this state has a dark and shameful history of crushing poverty, racism, and racial violence, and an unjust legal system. If we ever hope to heal from those sins of the past, we need to know the truth. And finding the truth at the Dozier School for Boys means getting dirty, means stripping off the topsoil so we can see what is underneath. It means digging down until we find the bones of dead boys, then carefully bringing them up from the earth and taking them to my lab so we can determine who they are and how they died. It means giving the remains of those boys to families who had been robbed of them decades before. Erin, do you feel like your work at Dozier is complete? I do. I think that we, I would like to think that we found everyone. There's things unanswered. We have more remains, more bodies than names on the list. So we don't, you know, there's five, a difference of five that we don't know at all who they even possibly could be. Um, And it's a large space, you know, with 111 year history. So I'm sure there's more to learn, but I, I do feel like we were thorough and spent years searching that property and really tried to uncover what happened and the, and expose the system really for what it was. I think that that's really key is that why the boys were sent there, how the laws were changed in order to send more boys there, in order to send them for longer lengths of time, the racial discrepancies, the fact that there were more um, black boys that died, you know, that, were, that are unaccounted for. I, I don't think these are accidents or coincidence. I think it was a system really put in place um, to foster a certain outcome. And that time of segregation and racial injustice just penetrates every aspect of it. And I think there's more similarities to other you know, things in, in Florida history, like you know, with regard to lost cemeteries and so forth. So I think in that way, the work continues. But I, I think in terms of the, the reform school itself, um, we were able to, to bring a lot of that forward. So just that that bigger idea of healing from the sins of the past, I mean, do you think the state of Florida has, and, and those responsible for what was done at Dozier, have they done enough to atone for the abuse that was perpetrated on those boys there? You know, I think that's a important question and one that even the survivors and the and the victims and the families struggle with. Because some people would say, okay, the state apologized, they acknowledged it, and that was more than they ever thought they would get. So they, you know, they feel a sense of, uh, you know, acknowledgement of peace, that's, that that's important. But others would say, we don't have our brothers back because they, they're dead, right? They were killed. Um, there's still the cause and manners of death largely unaccounted for. Or if they are accounted for, the state was still responsible because they were in their care. Um, there's never been reparations for the men whose whole lives were affected by the abuse that they endured. And so I think they feel like there's a lot more that could have been or should be done. We've been speaking with Erin Kimmerley, forensic anthropologist, author and artist, and director of the Institute for Forensic Anthropology and Applied Science. Um, in the Department of Anthropology at the University of South Florida. I've been speaking about her book about the deaths and burials at the former Arthur G. Dozier School for Boys in Mariana, Florida. The book is called 
we carry their bones. Erin, thank you so much uh, for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. And that's Florida Matters for this week. You can find us online at wusfnews.org or via Facebook or Twitter. Search for Florida Matters. Donora Prevost is our producer. And don't forget, coverage of the midterm elections from the primaries all the way through November is available on our website, wusfnews.org. Go to our Democracy 2022 page where you can ask questions about the election process, issues and candidates. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.